Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience. He holds a master's of social analysis with an emphasis in criminology. He is also an instructor and a firefighter, but we won't hold that against him. Representing the great state of Minnesota, please welcome Austin Rice. Austin, how are we doing? Doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. All right. So it's a little cold there in Minnesota today, I would imagine. It is. It is indeed. Oh, man. And are you originally from Minnesota? No, I'm not. I actually was born and raised in California, but spent most of my childhood and growing up in Kansas City, the Kansas side specifically. So, okay. Kansas so not as cold, but still can be cold. True. That is true. Okay. Well, hey, it it is 68 degrees here in Tallahassee, Florida, just to rub it in. But anyway... So great to have you. Looking forward to getting your perspective. Let's start in the beginning here. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah, so I I did my undergraduate studies and graduate studies at Kansas State University in the great little town of Manhattan, Kansas, also known as the Little Apple. But I started out as a biology and psychology major and kind of bounced around in my first couple years of undergrad and settled on psychology and got an advisor and me in meeting with my advisor, I was kind of interested in various aspects of psychology, but really liked kind of the psychology of crime and why crime happens and took a, uh, a class called like drugs and behavior and had my project be about drug crime and all this stuff. And I, I finally told my advisor, I'm like, well, I'm just really interested in crime. And he's like, well, did you know that we have a criminology program within our <laughs> sociology department here? And I was like, no, <laughs> not at all. And uh, so I went over and uh, talked to the advisor in that department and uh, ultimately changed my major for thankfully the last time and uh, settled on sociology and with an emphasis in criminology. And uh, my senior year, I actually I met up with a bunch of great professors and was lucky enough to be involved in some undergraduate research projects and uh, would my senior year had a course where my whole entire summer was to get an internship. So I was looking for internships in various areas and had stumbled upon an opportunity in the great state of Pennsylvania, of all places, with the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, and applied out there. And I was really interested in, again, kind of that narcotics, drug trafficking type stuff and got placed within their Bureau of Narcotics Investigation and Drug Control Office, which was in Philadelphia. So my Kansas self uprooted my my nice living arrangement in Manhattan, Kansas for the summer and moved out to Philadelphia and stayed in an apartment and just kind of bounced around all these different field offices and was out there. And that's where I really got exposed to crime analysis as I know it today and working alongside that office's Intel analyst, learning what I too was and, and going through the motion of kind of an investigation. They, of course, handed me all the typical intern work, but one of which was like coming through bank records, looking for statistical anomalies. 
and joke was on them because I absolutely loved it because that's <laughs> that was the one thing that none of them wanted to do. But hand me a spreadsheet and I was tearing through that thing and pulling out different trends and abnormalities and I was really good at it. So I knew that was a really good fit and I started like kind of the, the office's specialty was really interesting. They they did parcel interdiction and looking for abnormalities and shipping different parcels or suspicious points of origin or addresses, or repeat addresses. And it was something that was very cool. So of course, when my time was up, I spent about three months out there, came back, finished out my senior year, and I was just all in on stats and trend analysis of crime. And I was, I was sold and I started then looking for jobs and crime analysis, just even, you know, what was that? Seven ish years ago was still like very kind of new. There wasn't a ton of opportunities, especially in around Kansas. And I really didn't know what I was doing entering the job market. And fortunately I was offered to stay at K-State and get my master's degree within the sociology department. And there was kind of this new kind of pathway, if you will, for getting your master's there it was the social analysis option. And it was, it was built perfectly for anyone who wanted to get into research methods and statistics surrounding social problems, including crime. So I stayed there, got my master's program, oddly enough, worked on compliance rates of public housing across the state of Kansas. It wasn't what I wanted to work on, but what I wanted to work on was drug data. And that was kind of my first reality check of, of crime data is very messy or doesn't exist in the ways that you think it does. So I got set up with the state health department to work on compliance rates, which I think overlaps pretty decently with some some crime problems, but it was a great opportunity. And towards the end of that program, I started looking for crime analyst jobs and very quickly learned that the best way to not get a crime analyst job is to geographically isolate yourself in your search because <laughs> there is no guarantee on, on where positions are open at any given time. So it was spread out all over the place and fortunately got moved forward in the, the Minneapolis Police Department process and got offered a job to move up to the Twin Cities and I jumped on it. It was a great opportunity and I've worked my way up through Crime Analyst 1 and I'm now a Crime Analyst 2 here and we've built out a great little unit of Crime Analysts here and really excited to be here. and It's a great spot to have landed. Oh, great. There's a couple things to unpack there. So I am from Pennsylvania, so I am still consider myself a PA boy, even though I live in Florida now. So, but Philadelphia, I haven't spent any time in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a, I love, I love Philadelphia. It was, it, it was a cool spot. I did all the touristy things for mm -hmm. like the first couple of weeks. And then some of the agents that I worked with within that office, they, I think they were trying to scare uh, the living <laughs> heck out of me and they took me to all the the dingy spots of philadelphia but you know it, it was a very cool city to be in and i really enjoyed it yeah do you have a favorite dingy spot well they took me they took me up to kensington and i actually the the my favorite dingiest spots were uh the best places to go to get really good food in Philadelphia were the places that you would look at as an outsider and be like, there's no way in heck I'm stopping here. It's pretty much any place that you thought that was the place to go to get really good food, mostly Italian food or cheesesteaks. Yeah, just kind of built-in buildings that don't necessarily have the the curb appeal that maybe you would be looking for. And yeah, I can 
imagine the case. Well, that's you get into the mom and pop places, and that's a lot of what they're going to be, especially when a in a city with the way the city's structured. That's that's the way it's going to be. So, especially coming from Kansas. (laughs) Yeah, and we have something in common there as well. That it sounds like we both went to school until we found a job, and I know that's not necessarily recommended, but. That's what I did. I couldn't find it after undergrad, couldn't find it after getting a computer certificate. It wasn't until after I got my master's degree that I found a position. So with that master's degree, then it's social analytics. And you mentioned it goes through all the different types of testing in social environments. I often say this for law enforcement analysis that I I, I sometimes feel that there's not enough science in the profession. Like we are not running statistical tests on much of anything, right? Not right. that I think, not that I'm su- suggesting that we do it with every single thing we do, but it seems to me that there should be some more science behind some of the products that we are producing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, part of why I really liked that program is, you know, I learned all the social theory, I learned criminological theory. But then having that methods component to it to understand, you know, how do you how do you discern that your analysis is valid, like like validity tests or regressions and and all that stuff, and it it's important. It's really important in the field, and and you know, even I find myself with that background doing a lot of the work that I do day to day, where I'm not including that stuff, and I sometimes will pause and think, oh well. Should we dig a little deeper, spend a little bit more time to add a little bit more depth to some of these numbers that we're crunching for people, but also understanding your customer too, right? Is is in these analytical products, is somebody going to know or really comprehend what these things are when they're just asking simply for numbers over five years, right? You mentioned that they're important and you also mentioned that it, it can be confusing to your audience. So what would you tell folks of like why they should be running tests on the stuff that we're producing? That's a great question. You know, especially in today's day and age, interest in law enforcement trends and specifically data around policing is at an all-time high. You look at any news cycle today and usually you're going to find something about crime trends in there. And it's important, you know, it's not often included in some of the reporting out of of crime trends, of if crime is up or down, but it's important to add context as an analyst of, is this increase or decrease statistically significant, but also mm-hmm. kind of having the understanding as an analyst to provide context so that people can consume that information and understand really what it means. So for instance, you know, I, like one of my biggest pet peeves or kind of like secret disdains in criminology or, or crime trends is homicide. So homicide metrics, personally, I think are really important to keep a really close eye on, but they are so subjective to very wide swings, especially in smaller or mid-sized agencies. And granted, you know, we did see a, a fairly significant increase in homicides, but year over year in 
recent history, we haven't taken into account things such as how EMS services have changed out in the field to increase survivability of gunshot wounds, things like that outside of just raw numbers haven't really been taken into account. And you get into the ones and twos comparisons, you know, you, that's where you get the, the yearly, well, homicide is up in XYZ city, mm-hmm. but really it's 34 as opposed to 32 the previous year. So, and that's well within a standard range over time. So yeah. yeah, we we always made the comment when I worked at Baltimore Police Department of how John Hopkins did their part to keep the homicide rate at bay because they clearly saved people that in other circumstances may have died. Right. Absolutely. As my my other kind of experience or or side job is as a firefighter in EMT. And, you know, just even things, just having that perspective of kind of that world is, uh, you know, things in EMS have changed so drastically from, so for instance, in Minneapolis, our last big homicide spike was in the 1990s. What EMS providers did in the 1990s as opposed to today it's incredibly different, right? It's mm-hmm. just some of the interventions that are allowed, chest seals, and some of the science behind, you know, what makes gunshot wounds really fatal and understanding that. Sears have a much better understanding of that today. And the survivability of a gunshot wound in a lot of urban areas has undoubtedly become far better, better odds of survival based on some of these these really fantastic interventions that our paramedics do across the country every day. Yeah, it, I what comes to mind when you say that is even traffic patterns. I think what we've as cities have learned over the last 20, 30 years about traffic has would also influence that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, kind of coming full circle to that, I think it's really, I think it is kind of the place of the analysts to to keep those external factors kind of in mind when we are reporting out on some of these trends and and caution folks when they want to go back and compare homicide rates from the 1980s or 1990s to today. Yeah, and homicide is an interesting phenomenon because, look, the details of why the homicide happened and, and is this going to lead to other violence? Right. There's because in terms of police departments, you're obviously investigating the homicide and you're investigating the case and you're looking to find out who's responsible for the homicide. There's that aspect to it. But then there's the purpose of the police. It's into more prevention and your policies from there to prevent future ones from happening. So in that regard and. And for the layperson, this might be difficult for them to put their wrap their heads around. But a domestic violence homicide is treated differently from a homicide in which rival groups are involved, Absolutely. right? Or if it's a robbery in progress in which it seems that the intention was to rob, not necessarily murder the person. That's going to be treated differently if it's a drug deal gone wrong sure, type right. thing. And I think that could be difficult for some people that they might not want to hear that if, right. you know, they they might not want to hear the facts when they're in fear for themselves. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, again, like that's where I and my cohorts as analysts 
we really are kind of looked to to provide some of that context. And, you know, granted, we don't always collect these data points. It's not always built into RMS systems to have these things heard when you're filling out a police report. And so it's important to also explain some of the limitations to these numbers of like what you mentioned about domestic sides too. It's, you know, you could have, say your homicide difference in a year is 10, but seven of them were domestic homicides. Mm -hmm. It's tough to kind of delineate that out and explain that to the public because no matter what, these a homicide is an incredibly tragic situation, no matter what the circumstances are. And so you kind of have to walk a very fine line of, of not sounding tone deaf and just spewing numbers as an analyst, right? Yeah. And, and understanding these things and, and knowing that the community wants these this information, but you have to to go about it in a very tactful way and, and really be forthright with, with information. Yeah. I always think of the Z-score and in these, because the Z-scores can tell you how predictable or how volatile a, a data set is and Absolutely. certainly if you get a, a set of data that's really volatile lots of differences theft from autos or auto burglaries where you call them you're you're not going to get the the z-score might tell you that yeah that's not really that that important there's a lot of noise there but again if you go through a series of theft from autos in a particular area, they're not going to want to hear that the numbers say it's not that important. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's also one of my my other disdains in crime stats is, at least in Minneapolis, our neighborhoods are very small too. So neighborhood crime statistics are one of my greatest displeasures and reporting out on because I know that Things such as Z-scores, when you are looking at like a six block area, when you're telling somebody who lives in an area neighborhood, well, technically this this crime stat, so say it's shootings, are, are in line with what your neighborhood sees on any given time period. But they live on that northwestern quadrant and the next neighborhood over has seen an exponential increase. They don't like hearing that, right? Because it, it you treat things like neighborhoods have these giant walls where folks are not exposed to what's happening just on the other side of the street. So, yeah. So I, I do want to encourage you though, that I think this is a really good topic for a conference presentation. Absolutely. Right. I think so, I think yeah. so too. It, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be a how-to or scare people with a bunch of statistical tests. Why is statistical tests important in the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah. So I, I really encourage you to put in for that for the IACA conference or the Minnesota regional. Yeah, what is, we what's have, the, what's we the one? Mesia. It's called okay. Mesia. And a great group of panels from across the state. And we had a good little uh, contingent group representing Minnesota at ICA in Chicago this year. But yeah, who knows? Maybe you'll uh, maybe I'll put in for something and you'll see me in the Dallas area or Grapevine, Texas. Yeah. Look at you. You're very good being very specific. See, because I had Jonathan Softly on a couple weeks ago and he made sure to correct me that it wasn't That's Dallas. Right. It was Grapevine. I'm like, oh, well, sorry that it's got it wrong. It's a suburb that we're at. We're not in Dallas or Fort Worth, we're in Grapevine. <laughs> but all right, well, so let's then talk about your, you get the job, you're in Minneapolis PD, 
pretty big city, pretty big police department. What do you think in the first time walking into the building and starting your career as an analyst? Yeah, you know, it's it was it was kind of daunting. I'm not going to lie. Minneapolis is a big city and it there was a lot going on then even in 2018 and just kind of getting my footing and understanding, you know, the different roles of different types of analysts. So here we have both dedicated crime analysts, but we also have intelligence analysts and really getting the lay of the land in terms of sort of roles and responsibilities and how we co-mingle and, and work together, but also just understanding, you know, records management systems and, and data table structure and, and what things can and cannot be analyzed together and policing data is incredibly messy. So actually one of my very favorite things, not to go too much on a sidebar, but this is something that I think really accurately portrays how I felt coming in as a, a new analyst fresh out of of graduate school where all data is perfect it's you you don't have to deal with much messy data but it actually was like a, a cartoon from i think it was portland oregon or somewhere out pacific northwest they did a story on police or police department's records management system and, and they had a cartoonist draw a picture where it depicts an officer frantically typing on a computer while he's sitting on a ship that's sinking into the water and i think that was really funny because you kind of picture this like policing data in general, you write a report, everything's perfect, all is well. But in reality, it's kind of this imperfect conglomerate of information that's all shoved into a, a software system. And you as an analyst are expected to extrapolate that back out and, and make something of it. Or God forbid, you have two separate software systems and you have to combine those two and case numbers together. And, and yeah, it's a big mess. But once I overcame that, you know, I had a great group of fellow crime analysts and sworn staff in the chief's office. It's all super supportive and and taking on the kind of CompStat and understanding that I had always heard of CompStat and, and knew of CompStat from books and readings of how police departments did it out east and every department does it differently. And so just kind of embracing that all was, that was a lot to take in, but it was a great place to do it. Okay. So then what are some tasks that you're doing in the beginning? Obviously, you mentioned you're supporting ComStat, but what are some things that you're focusing on when you first start? Yeah, so, you know, back in 2018, 2019, one of Minneapolis's biggest problems at the time was actually overdoses. And it was something that the department was really starting to look into how could we more efficiently investigate these. And one of my tasks at first was to onboard and help bring in Haida's OD map program and, and launch that and make Minneapolis a contributing agency working collaboratively with our city health department, state health departments, all sorts of folks, community groups, understanding how we can turn our calls for service data for overdoses into actionable information to help spread news to the community that, hey, obviously, Narcotics or fentanyl especially is always dangerous, but we're seeing that statistical anomaly that we have far more overdoses than normal. And really, that's what uh, ODMAP really is that uh, I'm not sure how familiar everyone is with ODMAP, but there's the concept of a spike alert and they try to categorize these trends. And really what a spike alert is, is a standard deviation. So anytime that your numbers fall two and a half times above the standard deviation, or really you can customize it on the back end, it creates an overdose spike. And that gets email blasted to whoever you are 
community partners with so that you can implement sort of an action plan to distribute Narcan strategically to certain areas, whatever it may be. So that was really one of the bigger projects that I tackled as a new analyst uh, and really kind of taking on a citywide problem and working with a lot of fellow analysts from around the state and metro area who were incredibly helpful and just trying to understand again, you know, what are some of the limitations of policing data, but um, with the fire department and EMS providers, they were really restricted in a lot of the information they could provide. So it was kind of odd that, you know, the police department really had the best opportunity to collect and share some of this data that could be shared with our community health partners. So that was one of the things that I first did, my first big project and carried that up all the way up until 2020 when some of my roles started to change. You hit an, on some several good points there. When you're talking about a citywide problem, it's not just one department's responsibility, right? It, right. And I think it's it's it can be daunting, but when you see collaboration like that, where you get all those city departments working in unison and to understand that we can come at this from various directions. We don't have to use a hammer every time right. type thing, right? There Absolutely. are several avenues that we could tackle this. And when you get a spike in overdoses, for instance, it's not just, oh, please start cracking down on the streets or what's the intel saying? Is there something where we have a bad batch of drugs in the area? It's dealing with health and counseling and the other departments and how they can help with this issue as well. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. And, you know, I felt that Minneapolis where we were really starting to respond to some of these things. It was a great group of collaborative individuals who were really trying to turn this information that, you know, up until then was just CAD data that would just come in, officers would respond, and it would just sit in a data repository. And turning that into an actionable item was very rewarding and, you know, undoubtedly made a positive impact across the region and continues to do so through till this day. It's just changed a little bit. And now our partners at Hennepin County take on some of that responsibility as we just, our bandwidth was spread too far and we could not maintain it, but we set the groundwork for it. And some of those projects still exist today. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You also mentioned Comstat and had Deb Peel on the show and she course, ran NYPD's Comstat, or at least worked on NYPD's Comstat. And she said that NYPD's Comstat is focused on patterns and trends. And every single pattern and trend is given a number and is worked on. And that is really the focus of their Comstat. And it's fascinating because I think if you talk to people outside of NYPD, at least early on when I was working in the early 2000s, the word was accountability. Everything was accountability, that you're going to be responsible for the stats that are in your section, post, district, whatever, however it's broken up in a city, that's you're going to be accountable for that. So you're going to be responsible for that. So where do you think Minneapolis PD is in that spectrum for their Comstat? Yeah, so this is, you know, really good timing for this question because we've really, and it started from the top down, is really trying to reevaluate Comstat, or here we call it MSTAT for 
Minneapolis statistics. Everybody has to put their <laughs> little spin on it. But, sure. you know, part of it too was when I first came on in, in 2018, our reported crimes were far different than they are today. And, and back then, it really changes with department leadership a lot and how they view CompStat or MSTAT in our case. <laughs> but, you know, Minneapolis, by all intents and purposes, in 2018, 2019, when I first came on, was arguably one of the safest large cities in the country. We had homicides in the 30s on an annual basis, and it kind of turned into this meeting where we were running out of things to talk about. There wasn't as much crime to really form trends on a weekly basis, or at least it felt that way at first. And, you know, it kind of turned into this meeting where just information was kind of regurgitated and it was more of just an information sharing meeting. And certainly when trends popped up, we would address those, but we weren't doing a really purposeful job of tracking outcomes. And really, we would say like, oh, here's how we're going to respond to this issue. And then we would just say, well, this issue has gone. <laughs> and <laughs> all right, move on to the next issue. But we really didn't evaluate any of those effort. And I think we were doing ourselves a disservice because it's important to understand how we've responded to issues previously to know what strategies or tactics in certain geographic areas had really positive outcomes. So now, you know, in the last couple months and really or in the last couple of years, we've seen an unfortunate drastic increase in, in violent crime, specifically in shootings, gunfire activity, robberies, carjacking. So we have a large amount of data to work with. And we actually had CompStat every two weeks. And now that has transformed into a weekly occurrence where we have dedicated slides for trend scene and positive outcomes, or also what actions didn't really see any positive outcomes. You don't need positive outcomes every week. Not everything is going to work, but it's important to know what does work and where so that we can shift some of our resources and, and tactics and use our crime analysts to, to better understand what those trends are doing in certain geographic areas. Yeah, I think almost every meeting that I've ever been part of that was part of a series, whether it was weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, it eventually went stale. Like it, right. it started out great. There was a lot of movement in the beginning. And at some point in time, the majority of participants were on autopilot. And you had to change it up. You had to do something different at, at some point in time. And also your statement, I was thinking of when you said you weren't assessing, I was, I would say, well, John Eck would say that you're doing SAR, not Sarah, right? <laughs> so, but it's good that you put that last A in, in your comm stat. So that's, that's good. Hi, this is Kristen Lotman. My public service announcement is to say, get your face out of your phone and your fingers off your keyboard and make that face-to-face -face contact because that's how you'll connect with other people. This is Jennifer Loper. It's okay to fall apart sometimes. Tacos fall apart too, and we still love them. Let's move on to your analyst badge story then. Sure. And for those that may be new to their show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works on. And for you, it's right in the beginning, 2019, 
and Minneapolis is hosting the final four. Yes. So just for those that may not know what that is, that's the the college basketball tournament and the final four. It's the national championship games and big event. It's Super Bowl-esque, maybe not as big as the Super Bowl, but it certainly impacts many different areas of a city. And so for you, how did it impact your day-to-day work life? Sure. Yeah. It's So it helped actually that right before I came on Minneapolis PD, Minneapolis had hosted the Super Bowl just the year prior. <laughs> so a lot of the infrastructure and plans were in place from the Super Bowl, but I was actually tasked with staffing the multi-agency command center for the Minneapolis Final Four. And it was an approximately two-week assignment. And of course, as the new analyst, I got assigned to work the overnights, which was always fun because everything happened at night, all the events and, and a lot of the activity was in the nighttime. But really, Anytime a city hosts something like this, a large event, your city landscape entirely changes, which for crime analysts can be pretty challenging because you know of, you know, geographic trends and areas that are routinely problematic or have infrastructure in place that make them less likely to experience crime. But when you host a large event, such as the Final Four or Super Bowl, you have all these side events that are kind of scattered all throughout the geographic space around the city, and also just the large influx of people who come in. And you're um, constantly tracking any trends or patterns or suspicious activity that, you know, the way that you look at your crime data also changes, just the implications of some of the national security risks of having a large event, such as the final four, you know, a general suspicious person call or suspicious vehicle, you just sort of look at it a little bit differently. And and you have to change some of the ways in which you're writing your products or what you're including in your products as well. So, you know, in stolen vehicle reports, Things such as stolen U-Hauls or cargo vans are of particular concern, whereas any given week you're like, oh, somebody didn't return their U-Haul. Like that happens every week. So it it changed, you know, what we focused on. But also that was really my first exposure to working in a command center with national incident management practices in place, command structure, and kind of navigating that whole structure and sort of reporting structure and day-to-day activities. And But it was really also a great experience to see face-to-face and understand some of your state, federal, or just even local partners that you normally wouldn't interact with on a day-to-day basis. And kind of all the the greatest resources in your area all in one room. So it was it was very cool to see that and just the very, also just a lot of the technology that came out of hosting that event that we were able to implement, especially as it pertains to mapping. You know, we had the folks from Esri come in and help do technical onsite support for creating like a 3D map of our entire downtown and things that sort of we were able to take and run with going forward that helped increase some of our abilities in our day-to-day after that event. Obviously, when people think of a large event like that, they've seen enough movies to think, oh, you're trying to prevent a terrorist attack, right? right? And But with all the different venues that are going on throughout the city at different times, each has their own security issues, and it's 
maybe the less sexy stuff that comes right. about where you're you're talking about maybe a, a theft or a robbery that is just within that confines of where that area is or maybe it's guests that have gotten out of hand that had maybe too much to drink and then they're they're putting other people in danger so there's there's the aspect of like an overt terrorist act or an overt crime but then there's just other stuff where okay people are in danger we have that type of security issue at each one of these little events at the final four right and you know minneapolis one of the great parts about the city is a lot of our sporting events and infrastructure for those large events are all downtown so mm -hmm. we have sort of our downtown bar district right in the midst of our football stadium our baseball stadium and target center where the timberwolves play so our basketball arena all within a very small geographic footprint of downtown so all these events things such as you know fights or a robbery are also still really important because they we don't want those things to get out of hand for multiple reasons, but also we're hosting a lot of people in from out of town and this is their sometimes first impression of Minneapolis. <laughs> and so it was very interesting to see from a resource allocation standpoint of how do we equitably and evenly spread out these resources to maintain a constant level of just presence and deter some of these you know, regular street crimes in this area where the opportunity for victimization is exponentially higher by hosting this event with all these people downtown. So, okay. and then in terms of your position as an analyst, what did you take out from working this event? Yeah, that's a great, great question because I thought that, you know, my role as an analyst, the way that I viewed a lot of things somewhat changed from that in in that i really grew more comfortable with certain things such as like our camera systems and understanding how to operate those but also you know understanding how important a landscape of a city is and how certain changes to an, a landscape of either a downtown area or a residential area can impact crime and understanding some of the the give and take of changing you know just the the normal operation of, of an area um, and really understanding the the importance of place and suitable targets and likely offenders all commingling in a geographic area and really taking that and moving that forward and in, in how we talked about handling certain crime hotspots or or just the impact of you know a licensing change of of somebody opening a new bar in an area that had purely been residential for a long time. So that's kind of how my my perspective changed on, on moving forward into day-to-day -day operations after that. Okay, good. Now in 2022, you are working on a gun crime task force, correct? Yeah, you know, you know, we Minneapolis had a exponential increase essentially in our gunshot victims annually and our homicides as well. So we went from that 30-ish, mid-30s, low-40s metric annually for our homicides up to the mid-90s, upper-90s homicide victims, which had, you know, you really don't think about the impacts of that 
organizationally as well. So the drain on investigators and intel analysts, that's just more and more of a workload there. But also just our shooting victim carjackings became a thing. On average, we had like 50 carjackings in a year, up well into the mid-hundreds in terms of individual incidents. So the the use of a gun became far more prevalent in, in many of our crimes. So we developed strategies amidst dwindling staffing on how can we most effectively utilize the staff that we have now to make the greatest impact in terms of our gun violence. So we we found that, you know, we make a really positive impact by being in the right geographic areas that are most likely to experience gun crime and really understanding our hotspots across the city. And we launched an initiative that was known as the Greater Minneapolis Violent Crimes Initiative. So Minneapolis is a fairly small, large city, so we're about 50-ish square miles, but we saw crime spread outside of that boundary. And we are known as the Twin Cities, so we have our friends over in St. Paul, just to our east as well. So we were thinking of, of how we develop a strategy that utilized all of our partners, that being the state, local county level, and federal partners to make a positive impact on crime. And we did focus enforcement details that put these officers in strategic places that were our year-to-date crime hotspots. So maintaining a, a proactive presence in a lot of these areas was really important. And we started to see that by being in these areas and understanding who was perpetuating most of these criminal acts and taking guns out of their hands, we started to see our shootings decrease in those areas. And understanding concepts and integrating an analyst to be able to speak to things such as displacement. So just because crime goes down in an area, we want to make sure we're just not spreading it elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And uh we, it was a long initiative through the summer, and we actually started to see our guns recovered surpass the 1,000 mark in a year, which had never been done in Minneapolis before. So in 2020, 2021, and 2022, we've now surpassed 1,000 guns recovered for three consecutive years, which had never happened previously. So really being purposeful about intercepting or interrupting these cycles of violence to to make a positive impact and decrease crime. So we carried that through the summer and then started to develop some other data-driven ways in which we could be most effective with dwindling resources in our sworn staff by, you know, looking at places where we could do footbeats when the weather's nice. I don't know mm-hmm. many officers who would want to do a footbeat in Minnesota in the winter, but mm-hmm. they're really important. You know, if people are out and about, we should be as well was sort of the, mm-hmm. the thought behind it. And, you know, we made a really positive impact and we've started to see our stats switch from this kind of ever present increasing level of gun violence to now we've seen our our gunshot wound victims decrease by nearly 20% as opposed to last year. Hyper locally in these focus zones and hotspots, those decreases are even greater. So implementing data and analytics and essentially performance evaluation of what's working and what's not on essentially a weekly timetable and constantly feeding information to these officers of, for one, also just showing them what they're doing is working, which I think is really important, even in day-to-day operations and other analysts across the country is 
information should be trickling back down to officers to show positive impacts of, of their efforts because it really boosts sort of the buy-in, if you will, and in new efforts and change and implementing new strategies. It's important that, that they hear that too. So it's been a really long effort and it's really continuing through the end of the year and, and well into the new year. These are things that we're going to continue to do and, and be really purposeful with implementing analytics and data into day-to-day -day operations. Yeah. Now, is there another stage for this project or what do you think the future for 2023 is? You know, I think that this is the first really big step of the new normal, right? It's, we're not going to snap our fingers and get back to the sworn numbered staff that we were at before, which I know many departments across the country are facing, but as an analyst, Department leadership has leaned on analytics more to be very purposeful with where we're deploying our resources. So I foresee that this is sort of a new normal in which we're very purposeful using data on where we're deploying these resources to make positive impacts. So, all right. Well, let's talk serious subject now. Not that we haven't been talking serious to this point, but George Floyd. I know from my perspective, when I hear of a police-involved shooting, it had this barrier there that I didn't know the people involved. I didn't know the staff or the police chief. But obviously for you, that is different because this isn't just any police department. This is the badge that you wear on your ID for work. So I'm not necessarily asking you to speak for your department. There are people that this case impacted way more than you. But what I'd like to get is, given that this is your department, where you were working as an analyst, how did this impact you personally? Yeah, you know, it was a incredibly tragic mark and moment in time for our community, but also across the country. There were ripples felt around the world. And, you know, when I think about the moment in which this really hit me in my in my personal life outside of other than, you know, almost everyone that I knew reaching out to talk to me about it or want to talk to me about it, which was incredibly tough. I also at the time was going right into the fall semester teaching an introduction to policing course at a local college. And a lot of my students lived or worked in the community of Minneapolis or immediate surrounding areas. And that was a very personally challenging moment, but also one of, of personal and professional growth to the point that, you know, the, the classroom is a place for learning and growth. And, you know, one of the great things about a college classroom, too, is you get everyone together in a class to talk about a subject from all different backgrounds and experiences um, and ideas. And that includes the instructor. And I just so happen to be a crime analyst working for the Minneapolis Police Department, which was troubling for a lot of my students understandably and i you know 
worked through that whole semester and there were tough conversations that were had and in but also a lot of really productive conversations in which as an instructor i got to bring in criminal theory and, and social theory and we got to talk about just policing in, as in general and those students were in an introduction to policing course at one of the most, if not the most pivotal moment in policing history. And it wasn't until towards the very end of that class that one of the students uh, had come up to me and, and she said, you know, um, Austin, I, I really thank you for the semester, um, but I have to tell you, I almost dropped your class when the first day when you introduced yourself and said who you were and what you did because I didn't trust you. And that was really, really, I guess that was that that was a lot for me to process. But she said, you know, I am really grateful that I stayed in this course because I felt like I learned so much and really appreciated your insights, which for me was was really rewarding because it had been very difficult to process. But that was a pivotal moment that I really believed in, you know, transparency and, and sharing information about law enforcement and the role of analytics and data and, and, and the science element of it, right? Research methods and, and understanding why or trying to understand why is so important, especially today in, in talking through these, these difficult moments following the case of, of George Floyd. And well, here's to more coming together in 2023. Okay. Absolutely. All right, there's not really a good way to segue away from that, so we're just going to do it. We met at the IACA conference, and we got to talking in the prep call about different topics that we heard and discussed, and I thought it was interesting. One of the topics that you found interesting was at the conference, it seemed like there was not so much intel work as there was data analytics. So take that idea apart a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was one of the things after leaving Chicago and and we had myself and one other analyst from our department went and we, of course, brought back all of our, our knowledge learned and wrote up notes and to share when we get back. And as I'm going through all the courses that I went through before and reviewing my notes, it just struck me that I felt this shift. And the last time that I had gone to an ICA conference was in DC in 2019. And I felt this shift of perhaps slightly less Intel-oriented course material, more research and evaluation and statistics type of presentations, which I think, you know, getting back to, you know, sort of the shift in in policing through modern days is there is this increasing reliance on data and information sharing and, and statistics, both as it relates to performance measures of, of policing, but also just crime stats. And one of those moments actually, Noah Fritz presented in the OJ track, which also that was, I think, one of the moments was that DOJ or BJA had a, a whole classroom just reserved that whole week just mm -hmm. for very specific criminology and statistics and research method type presentations. And, and his presentation was on sabermetrics and how it relates to baseball. And, and I think it was sabermetrics mm -hmm. is to baseball as crime analysis is to policing. And yeah. that was like my favorite presentation that whole week because it really put 
data and analytics and statistics at the forefront of the conversation around policing. And, you know, it's, it was really good to see some of our federal research partners involved in, in sponsoring a lot of the, these projects because these are the types of things that are being asked of police departments and agencies to report out on nowadays. And I think that sort of the crime analyst tends to get tasked with figuring out how to extrapolate this type of information for an agency. So I was very happy to see that sort of shift and not necessarily less Intel stuff because that's that stuff is very cool to listen to and, and learn from. But, you know, I I was glad to see sort of the, the course materials be more representative of at least what I was experiencing and in the increase in demand for performance measures, evaluation, metrics, data, everything like that. So. Yeah, given how big a baseball fan Noah is, it's not surprising that he <laughs> has a baseball analogy. All right, and then I guess another aspect to the conference is the idea of analysts going to the private sector and yeah. the the topic of how does police departments or government retain their analyst yeah that was an incredibly eye-opening theme that i noticed and i think it's important for us as a profession to to keep talking about this because Crystal Laney, who is from Esri, fantastic resource to talk to if you're somebody who uses Esri products, he put on a class or a presentation on analysts transitioning to the private sector. And, you know, I saw it and I'm like, well, that's interesting. And I was actually going to go to the presentation across the hallway from it. I don't even remember what it was anymore. And I remember just peering in the door and seeing almost every single chair full, mm -hmm. which was the first time I had seen that in any class, I think there. And I'm like, what in the world is going on in here? And I walk in there and I see that it's this presentation. I'm like, well, this is interesting. Like I'm going to I'm just going to sit down and listen to this. And, you know, personally, I, I personally, as of now or any time in the future, don't have plans to jump ship to the private sector. But I thought it was interesting that so many people did. And I wanted to listen to what was being shared. And they actually shared a lot of findings on why analysts are transitioning to the private sector and listing out a lot of the reasons that that switch is happening. And of course, it's pay, benefits, being overworked, the kind of emotional toll that it takes on you. And, you know, also the lack of upward movements or the opportunity mm -hmm. for upward movement within a police department, which is something that I started to look at this class as how can I, as a more senior analyst in our unit, take these things from this presentation to bring back to ensure that we can maintain units without turnover. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was a moment that I'm sure other analysts saw too, going back to their agencies. How can we take these things, seeing these hundred, it was more than a hundred people without a mm -hmm. doubt in this room. How can we take this as a sign of, of, you know, we need to be doing things differently. And I'm really proud of my agency for building out some depth within the crime analysis and Intel analyst positions so that we have for instance, a crime analyst one position with seven salary steps, and we have a crime analyst two position with seven salary steps. So now we have a civilian crime analyst supervisor with, again, seven salary steps. So we're building out sort of the, the longevity of having new recruits or new analysts that we hire to be able to see 
you can stay here and work through three separate positions with three separate salary ranges for the long haul. And, you know, there was a conglomerate from Houston PD, Patrick Alexander, I think, presented at the Esri conference in San Diego this last year. And they mentioned that they started looking at their crime analysis unit and, and kind of business technology unit as a small tech startup and sort of, you know, thinking about those things and how we can compete with the private sector, even though we can't. The, the harsh reality is we really can't. But be thinking about ways that we can make it more attractive for analysts to stay, if even for a little bit longer. Yeah. Was that Freddie Croft? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I've had Freddie on the show. Excellent. I've said this a couple of times on the show. Really, I think it's great that there's stages now of mobility as one, two, and three for analysts. Certainly wasn't there you know, in many spots 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, but it, I think, or more civilianization in the police department, I think will be a benefit to the law enforcement analysis profession. Having folks work up from being an analyst, getting all the way up to leadership positions on the executive staff for police chiefs, I think that will pay off exponentially to this profession, that it is a little disconcerting. I sound like old man elder saying this, <laughs> but it is disconcerting that there's so many people get so far in, in government, police departments, and then go off to the private sector, because I think there is this huge benefit to the profession to have senior level executive leadership that were analysts. Absolutely. And right back to sort of the retention issue is that's just another step for young analysts entering the field to see I can stay here or I can make this profession in the public sector a little bit longer than I would have uh, without those steps. Okay, good. And then how about advice for analysts? What's your advice? My advice for analysts would be I guess I'll, I'll separate this too a little bit. So advice for like new analysts and analysts that have been in for a few years. So my advice for new analysts is sort of twofold. So one is um, keeping in mind what we've talked about with the importance of data and analytics and whether you wanna be an Intel analyst or a crime analyst, data is sort of at the root of it all. And my advice would be if you're in college to the point like young would-be analysts, take a class in statistics or research methods, something that gives you a really good understanding of how data and, and research methods and analytics work to understand some of those statistical scores and, and measures. But, and then also for my experienced analysts out there listening, don't be like a static analyst, right? As, as I'm guilty of it too, as my products look the same over a long period of time, bring some new stuff in there. Don't be afraid to take, you know, an online class through IACA, which is, they have a great online course selection to build your skills in Excel or mapping or whatever it may be. But yeah, I guess just don't be that static analyst. Be looking for ways to incorporate change in your products and your personal skill sets. Nice. All right. Good. Well, let's talk personal interests because as I mentioned in the introduction, you are a firefighter. I am. And I see here that in 2014, you 
were awarded the Blue Township Fire Department Firefighter of the Year. So how, how did you earn that? So I'm setting up a little bit. I, I was really interested in the fire and EMS field coming out of high school, of all things. And when I went to Kansas State University, I was itching to look for an opportunity to be involved with the fire department. And there was a a little volunteer fire department, just just the bedroom community outside of Manhattan, Kansas, that had some volunteer positions open. So I applied, and just absolutely loved it. It was it, it was a little challenging to balance the school balance with some of the responsibilities there, but you know I was available to respond to incidents as as needed, and sort of it was a unique dynamic because with your college schedule, you're oftentimes available during the day when some folks with full-time jobs are not. So there were a few times that there was a young group on the fire engine responding, but ultimately I ended up responding to somewhere near like 80% of the total calls of for the entire year. And that stood out in terms of the metrics of staffing and then just ended up being one of those faces that was around the most and made the most responses out of anyone else. So that is how I ended up with that award, which I was incredibly grateful for. That was a sort of a cool validation of the time I was putting in and stuff was worthwhile, but it's it was a really fun thing to be involved with and helped me grow professionally and actually set me up really well to be a crime analyst and sort of understand the incident command structure of sort of a, well, even the fire service and police service, there's a lot of paramilitary mm -hmm. type structure involved there and so it's it was a really good background for that and even to this day moved up to minnesota obviously had to drop uh that job as i couldn't commute back to kansas or that but <laughs> you know a little I bit. right a little bit of a work commute but it was a great thing to be involved with through grad school and just kind of have something else other than constantly reading books and and papers but I took a little break to be familiar with my environment up here and was really just too tempted to to not be involved with that anymore. So I, I stumbled upon a part-time firefighter opportunity and now I, I do that during the nighttime. Right. <laughs> so that is my that is my job outside of this job that is just it's incredibly rewarding and it's just too much fun and to not be doing that. So that is that is my hobby, if you will, that consumes most of my time outside of work. All right. That's quite a moonlighting gig. And, uh, yes. But to me, my devious mind goes with 80% of the calls. I might be investigating that firefighter to see if he's the one starting all these fires, right? You know, that's <laughs> that happens too often at a lot of these small town departments that, but you know, it, it it was it was weird because this department was it was all volunteers like we didn't have staff throughout the day so you know a lot of these calls come in like medical there most of them were medical calls they weren't all fires but would come in during the day when people were at work but all the firefighters that were on that were students of course were either not in class skipping class or coming or going to class and were willing to head on over to respond to that so it's, I think my schedule, I added the unfair advantage of having the student schedule there, but yeah. yeah. Hmm. All right. And like Noah, you are a baseball fan. And yeah. so who's your team? My team, even though I'm in Minnesota, surrounded by Twins fans, I am a diehard Kansas City Royals fan and forever will be. So 
All right. So what's your ex- expectation for 2023? As with most Royals fans, my expectation for 2023 is to be better than 2022 Royals. That is no large expectations there, but just a little bit better than last year. Yeah, but you had a run there. You went to two World Series in a row. So that's, I know uh, it. That was the heyday know. back in 2015, but it's been too long. We need to go back and start right. climbing. Very good. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World, and this is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Austin, what are your words to the world? My words to the world would be to continue to be curious, and that sounds you know, a little open-ended, but, you know, whether that be professionally for all the analysts out there or just in personal lives and, and looking into getting into new hobbies or, or try different things, the world of an analyst is very stressful. So you need something outside of that to keep the balance, but also within the job to be to be curious about new ways to do things, work in different things to your work products and ultimately give your department leadership new things to make positive impacts in your community. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, Austin. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.